So have you guys ever uh, known you're going to have a tough conversation with a friend? And, uh, you know, you know you're about to, like, maybe there's, like, an issue in their life or, like, you know there's a conversation that you're about to have and it's going to be a hard truth. Like, you know how, like, a- anxious that kind of makes you? You know, like, some of you just kind of go, like, I'm just going to avoid that conversation because I don't really want to deal with it. Like, any non-confrontational people in the room? Only, like, five of you. That's actually pretty good. Um, honestly, that's how I feel about tonight's message. Um, I'm just, I just want to tell you right off the, bat, off the bat, I have felt more anxious than usual about this message because, honestly, the words that, like, if I'm going to be faithful to say, like, what God is saying through this passage, um, it's, like, very, very heavy. Um, and I want you guys to give me grace in that. But I also want you to know that, and you guys know this to be true, uh, the darker something is, the more beautiful and bright the light of Christ is. Amen? So I want you guys to have that um, kind of posture towards, like, receiving the, just the words of God and, um, and then just pray that Christ would make his grace so beautiful to us tonight. Sound good? So I don't have an outline for tonight. I just wanted to read the story that we're going to talk about. I'm going to stop a few times, and we're going to apply the text to our world and our culture and then our own lives, and uh, it's going to be really good. So if you've been tracking with us, we're in a study called Rooted in the Book of Daniel. And last week, if you guys were here with us, we talked about King Nebuchadnezzar. So King Nebuchadnezzar was like the biggest, baddest king on the globe at the time. And he and his pride like set himself up against God. And he had this dream. And Daniel was brought into the king's presence to interpret the dream. And essentially he's like, hey king, you got 12 months to repent. And if you don't humble yourself before God, things aren't going to be good for you. Sure enough, 12 months go by. Nebuchadnezzar like boasts about his kingdom and his glory and he like he used all of his gifts to uplift himself and to completely reject God and God humbled him in that and then at the end of the story King Nebuchadnezzar which I love so much like the biggest picture of pride almost in the Bible he is humbled before God and he's restored to God and I'm just going to tell you up front this story tonight is on purpose it's it's purposely placed after uh, Daniel chapter 4, because it's, it's one of the next kings in the story, and he doesn't humble himself before God. So we're just going to jump into it. If you have your Bible with you, Daniel chapter 5, and we'll just start in verse 1. So King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. So it's party time at Belshazzar's house. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets uh, that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. So Nebuchadnezzar, when he uh, conquered Jerusalem, uh, he took uh, the, like, a lot of the articles that were in the temple of God, he took them and put them in the temple of his own God. So that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. And as they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Okay, let me give you a little bit of historical background of, like, what's actually happening in history right now. Believe it or not, King Belshazzar isn't actually the king of Babylon at this time. So according to historical records, the last king of Babylon was uh, King Nabonidus. And what happened was King Nabonidus was the last king of Babylon. And what happened was 
towards the end of his reign, he goes, I'm going to actually go to Arabia and just kind of live there. And I'm going to leave the city of Babylon in charge of with my oldest son. Okay, so he goes, he goes to Arabia. He puts um, Belshazzar as like the king. He's kind of like his puppet king in a sense over Babylon. Like, hey, dude, just make sure things are good. And while this is happening, uh, King Nabonidus actually goes out to fight the Persians. And as he's going out to fight the Persians, um, he actually loses that battle. And then the Persian army starts approaching the city of Babylon. And that's exactly what's happening when this scene takes place. So what's interesting in the story is you'll see it multiple times. Um, King Belshazzar will actually say, like, hey, if you can interpret what's about to happen, what I'll show you. He goes, I'll make you third in charge. Which makes you go, like, well, why would he make people third in charge and not second? It's because he's second in charge. So while this whole scene is happening, while people are getting drunk, while his concubines and his wives and everybody is there, the, enemy, the Persian army is actually surrounding the city of Babylon right now. So right, after, right off the bat, you're supposed to see the difference between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. Like, Nebuchadnezzar was a builder. He was a strong man. And Belshazzar is just, like, drinking his life away and having a party while his city's under attack. And so what's happening in this scene that's such a problem? Like, what's the problem? See, this is actually like, when you actually understand what's happening here, King Belshazzar is actually intentionally mocking God and mocking his people. See, the, the precious temple objects that Belshazzar took from the temple of the God of Israel and, ha- and, and brought them to this party what he was actually doing with them is those objects actually represented the God of Israel and his people. So when, he's, when he says, bring in those goblets, bring in the temple articles, he's using what belongs to God to praise his own God. So what's actually, like, this is, this is no accident. Essentially, he's saying to God, you are a captured and powerless deity. And he goes, you look at your God, you guys are an embarrassment, and you're a joke. And he's intentionally doing this. He's like, our city's being surrounded. It can't be broken in. And the God of Israel with all these, like, slaves we have serving us, he's like, their God's a joke too. So to put this in perspective of how shocking this would have been, uh, imagine if somebody took the communion elements, the sacred communion elements, the body and the blood of Jesus that we celebrate on Sunday, and imagine if somebody used those for a satanic ritual. You'd be like, you don't do that. That's exactly what Belshazzar is doing in this scene. And when you actually get underneath what's happening here, I want to make this very clear. Belshazzar's blasphemy of the one true God consisted of taking what belonged to the true and living God and using it for his own corrupt purposes with an attitude of indifference and God's assumed powerlessness to do anything about it. Let me say it a different way. He could use the name of God and the things of God for sinful pleasure, believing that God was irrelevant and outdated to current reality. Does that sound like our culture? He could use, essentially, he was taking what belonged to God in order to serve his own purposes. Now, I want to make it very clear. These, These stories in the scriptures, they're not just there to, like, read and go, oh, isn't that interesting? There's actually a whole lot underneath the surface that teaches us about society, about our world, and about ourselves. See, when you put sin that way, taking what belongs to God and using them for our own self-defining corrupt purposes, then you start to realize that Belshazzar is a pretty clear picture of what our society at large does, isn't it? 
Like, our society views God, views God as irrelevant and outdated. Like, and by the way, that's just getting more and more that way. Can't you tell? Like, God is completely being removed from the picture, and, like, we've just taken our own authority and our own permission to do with what God has given us, his world, for our own purposes. And you guys have known this to be true. Like, our world, it, it's claimed authority over what truth is, right? Like, our world right now essentially says there is no truth, or whatever you choose to be true is true. Like, we've taken authority over what God says about truth. We've taken authority over what's loving. What's loving now in culture is whatever you want to do, and as long as somebody doesn't interfere with that, um, that's cool. But um, your truth is your truth. What's loving is doing whatever you want to do. We've redefined sexuality, God's design for sexuality, um, into our own preferences. We've, uh, we've taken authority over business, over things like government, and ultimately, our culture has taken what's belonged to God, the decision on what is right and wrong, and has completely redefined that, has it not? And I just want to tell you, and I want you to reflect on this, how is that working for us? Like, how is that working for us? Like, when human beings take on the responsibility to choose that God is irrelevant, that God is outdated, and we just start defining on how this world should operate, like, look at our world right now. Our world is the most divided it's ever been, arguably. And not only that, um, our like, anxiety and depression rates are, like, out of this world. Like, mental health, like, it, it's, like it's out of this world. And what we're seeing, re- like, reap in our culture is when humans take things into their own hands, chaos happens. And just to be really clear, this is what the Word of God says. Psalm 24.1 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to him. A message contrary to our world. Colossians 1, 15 through 16 says this. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities, and unseen worlds. Everything was created through him and for him. See, when you reject the authority of God, and the wisdom of God, and the design of God in the world and in your life, what actually results is chaos and disorder. We experience brokenness in our relationship with ourselves, anxiety and fear. We experience relational breakdown. We experience relational breakdown in our relationship with God and with all of creation. And before we point fingers at our world, which it's so easy to do, is it not? Like, I feel like the church is really good at that. Just like, we just point the finger out there and be like, look how messed up they are. Do you think we do the same thing as Belshazzar? Do you think in the church, we take what belongs to God and we use it for our own purposes? Maybe. I wrote three things down that came to my mind in immediately. By the way, this is where it starts to sting a little bit. But this is the Holy Spirit loving us. So. Uh, don't we take our physical bodies, which scripture says belong to God? 1 Corinthians 6 says, you are not your own, you've been bought with a price. And we use them to satisfy sexual desires. Like, I feel like in young adult culture, I see this all the time. Like, we just kind of treat our bodies and, and sex as if it, does, as it belongs to us but it belongs to God. We take our money, 
which scripture is very clear belongs to God. And we use it to serve ourselves. We fill our savings accounts. We just buy stuff. We, we buy experiences and we just make life comfortable. When money, which belongs to God, that we're stewarding for God, is supposed to be used for generosity. And then we just use it on ourselves. I've seen this a lot. We take the church, which belongs to God, as Christ's bride. And we use it. I, I've, one of the things I've seen in American church culture, and honestly, especially in American young adult church culture, is that we kind of treat the God's church, his bride, like a shopping mall. Like, we go to that church when it, when it provides the things that we want at that store, and then we just go to the next church until it doesn't really kind of give us what we want, and then we go to the next one. When God says his bride is something to be cherished, to be loved, to be committed to, and so many people just, when things get hard and messy in the church, which, by the way, all your closest relationships are always the messiest, and then we just give up, Right? So Christian in the room, I want to I let you know that your dating, it belongs to God. Your time, it belongs to God. Your future belongs to God. Your money and your stuff belongs to God. You, child of God, belong to God. Honor him in those things. Honor him with your life. Because what Belshazzar did is he took what belonged to God and he used it for his own purposes. And we got to really reflect on our hearts and see where we do that in our life. Let's continue on with the story and see what happens with Belshazzar. All right, we're going to read a little bit of a chunk here, so just hang with me and pay attention. So Daniel 5, uh, verses 5 through 16. So suddenly, so the party time, you know, they're getting drunk, they're mocking God, they're mocking Israel, and suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. So this is getting real interesting real fast. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. Now, this is what's interesting. Uh, the actual translation of those words probably means that he was, like, pissing himself. So he's freaked out. This is not a good thing for Belshazzar. Then the king summoned the enchanters, the astrologers, and the diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face, and his face grew more pale, and his nobles were baffled. So like his nobles, they're all looking at the king, and they're like, dude, you're embarrassing yourself and us. Like I don't know what to do right now. Verse 10, then the queen... So Belshazzar's wife, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. Grow up, man. <laughs> That's what she's saying. There's, there's a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, uh, which was Nebuchadnezzar, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, and astrologers, and, div and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belshazzar, was found to have keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So, Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father, the king, brought from Judah? 
I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now, I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck. Apparently that was cool in that day. And you'll be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. All right, so uh, I don't have a whole lot to say about this specific section, except the irony of what's happening here, right? So Belshazzar, he's having this party. He thinks he's the man. He's like, get him the goblets, get him the wine, the best wine. Like, we're going to party. Then his wife comes in and says, essentially, like, dude, you got to grow up and get yourself together. And then he calls Daniel in and says, like, hey, man, can you interpret the dreams? Now, here's what's so ironic about that. Daniel and his people were just the people that he was mocking as irrelevant. And he is so frightened that he's like, the people that he was mocking and the God of the people whom he was mocking, now he's asking for help from. You guys ever been to that place where you're so desperate that you'll do anything? That's exactly where Belshazzar is. All right, verse 17 through 23. Then Daniel answered the king. He goes, you may keep your gifts for you yourself for yourself, and give your rewards to someone else. In other words, I don't want your stuff. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Verse 18, your majesty, the most high God, gave your father, Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and all the peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But pay attention here. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like an ox. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the most high God is sovereign over all kingdoms on the earth and sets over them anyone he, he wishes. Which, by the way, I just want to say, could you imagine if, like, Christians embraced that truth during political season? Just the peace that we would have and the lack of frenzy. That's a message for a different time. Verse 22. But you, Belshazzar, his son, this is where it gets real. You have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the gods who hold the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. All right. So here's what we see here. Belshazzar. Um, What's incredible to me is, like, so Daniel is, like, he starts confronting him. He goes, like, listen, Nebuchadnezzar, your father, he goes, he, in his pride, he was humbled. And, like, you know, he kind of had his, like, struggles, but he eventually humbled himself. He goes, but you, Belshazzar, he goes, you knew all this. In last chapter, I don't know if, I, if you guys remember, but Nebuchadnezzar actually wrote that testimony with his own hand. So most likely, Belshazzar would have read Nebuchadnezzar's testimony about how the God of heaven humbled him. And this was only seven years after Nebuchadnezzar has passed. And he goes, though you knew all this, you would not honor God. And I wanted to, like, kind of put it in front of your eyes and kind of, like, re-highlight some of those things. He goes, though you knew all this, 
you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven, you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all of his ways. See, talking about society again and human nature, one of the original marks of human nature is our refusal to honor God. Romans 8 talks about how the mind that is set on the flesh, the mind on its like natural path apart from the grace of God is set up against God. In Romans 1, 21 through 23, the Apostle Paul says this about humanity. He says, for al- although they, meaning humanity, knew God. So think about that language that Daniel just told Belshazzar. He's like, though you knew all this. He goes, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, think about our culture right now, like, all the wisdom that's, that's claiming to be. They became fools and exchanged the honor and the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. And so what you're getting a glimpse into here is a picture of what the Bible calls idolatry. Idolatry, actually, some theologians, is actually the best definition of what sin is. And um, now, you may read that Romans 1, 21 through 23, and you may read King Belshazzar's kind of, like, experience where, like, they took these goblets and, like, they worshiped the god of, like, gold and silver. You're like, those are idiots. I would never do that, right? But what the Apostle Paul is saying is, like, when you get at the root of all of it, sin is not giving honor to God, not giving him thanks for his world, for who he is, and for the things he's made, taking the things that he's made and designed and serving those things and centering your life around those things and making those things more important in your life than the God who actually created them. Does that make sense? So we actually have to do some work to actually really understand like what idolatry is for us in our lives if we're going to apply it. Uh, Tim Keller, he's a pastor out of New York, and uh, he, said, he had this quote about idolatry, and I think it's uh, really helpful. He goes, sorry, I need some water. (laughs) He goes, what is an idol? He goes, it is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. You see what Keller's doing there? He's saying whenever you take something that God has created, and this can be a dating relationship, this can be a job, this can be a, you know, an imagine like it could be stuff. You fill you fill it in, but whatever like fills your imagination and whatever like fuels you, whatever you look to and you serve and you and you kind of bend your life around that thing that's not God, he goes, that's idolatry. That's giving honor to the created things and not the creator. See, one of the things that I thought was so powerful and convicting about this passage is though you knew you would not honor is a really, really scary phrase when you think about it. Is it not? Because what it's talking about is an intentional sinning. Though we know, do we honor? And I'm going to talk very, very specific to the Christians, the professing Christians in the room. We know what God says about sexual immorality, don't we? Uh, Ephesians 5 says that the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul says, he goes, um, there shouldn't even be a hint 
of sexual, sexual immorality in the church. So it's not appropriate for God's people. And um, I looked at some statistics, and apparently <laughs> um, 76% of 18 to 24-year-old Christians are actively seeking pornography. Um, 50% of professing Christians are okay with sex outside of marriage. What's become the norm in the church is to take what God has created sex and it's made it present. And the Apostle Paul goes, he goes, like, you know when you, like, have, like, um, my wife loves to cook. And so she always has me try stuff. And she's like, did you taste, did you, did you catch, like, a hint of cinnamon in that? You know, like, barely. The Apostle Paul is like, I don't even want a hint of that in the church. He goes, it's idolatry. We also know that what God says about coveting, don't we? And yet we, we flirt with the God of consumerism here in America, filling our pockets and our houses and our apartments and our dorm rooms with stuff when there are poor in our city going hungry and in need. I did some actually research uh, on Friday. And in, in Mesa, Chandler, Gilbert, and Tempe, do you know there's over one million people, human beings that God loves living in poverty? And I didn't even think about it. And it's just right here, all around us. See, one of the things I want you to see about idolatry is it never just affects you. Sin, it always affects other people. It always affects other people. We also know that God's, what God says about our speech and how much he values integrity, yet we gossip about and slander our brothers and sisters in Christ, creating division in the church, don't we? Like how much, I, I'm very curious actually, like how much of like church splits and fractured relationships in the church, like relationships that couldn't be restored, I'm very curious about how many of those relationships and how many of those bonds were actually disrupted because of gossip and slander. God says don't do this, it hurts, and we do it anyway. Last thing, we know what the God says about drunkenness, don't we? Don't be drunk with wine, but instead... Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Guys, I got to be honest with you. This is one of the ones that I've always, like, not, I've always almost kind of been confused about. It's, like, in the church, there's, like, this exception of, like, getting drunk is cool. Or, like, there's, like, these categories of time where it's okay. It's, like, well, it was a bachelor party. You know, that's what we do. <laughs> um, or just, like, you know, it, or it's funny how drunk they got. And we all laugh about it. And I just, I'm, like, I'm not sure God's laughing so much about it. And if I'm going to be completely honest with you guys, um, the reason why this was um, the reason why this was such a hard um, this section of my message so hard is because I feel like out of um, all people, I'm the epitome of although I knew I did not honor. Um, I was raised in the church. My parents did a great job raising me; <laughs> they really did. Um, and I have probably lived like three and a half years of my life knowing what God said and not honoring him and feeling really stuck in my relationship with him. And I remember, I don't know if you guys remember, we went to Chili's. <laughs> we went to Chili's. And um, I was like, I met Connor. I met Connor at GCU. And uh, I remember like the, the first week we were there, Connor like vomits his testimony to me in like the first week. And I was like, oh, shoot. Now it's my turn. <laughs> and I just, like, I, like, literally unloaded on him, like, everything that I've been participating in for three and a half years. Like, like stuff I was, like, embarrassed of. Like, wouldn't tell anybody. And, and God took me about through a year of, like, radical transformation in my life. And he got a front row seat of all of it. 
I remember being in Chili's and like sobbing my eyes out, crying. Like, make, like I was so embarrassed, and I was just like telling my family, I'm like, listen, I knew all these things, and like I have not honored God in these things, and I just need to confess it. Like I don't know what else to do, just to like say like I'm in the wrong and I need help. Thank God for the grace of Christ. Amen. All right, let's continue the story. <clears throat> Daniel 5, verse 24. So right before he goes, but you did not honor the God who holds his hand, uh, who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Verse 24, therefore, this, so this is what happened. Because of what you did, this is what's going to happen. Therefore, he, that is God, sent the hand that wrote the inscription on the wall. This is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. Anybody know what that means? <laughs> Here's what the words mean. Daniel interprets it. Mene, God has numbered your days of your, the number of the days of your reign and has brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. By the way, if you've heard that phrase before, it's actually from the Bible. It's pretty cool. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was, so because Daniel interpreted it, Daniel was clothed in purple. He got that purple cape, Bible man cape. A gold, <laughs> the old church people know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> he was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Good for you, Daniel. Verse 30, but that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede, who was surrounding the city, the king of the Persian army, took over the kingdom at the age of 62. So although Belshazzar, although he knew, although he knew everything, he did not honor God, and what resulted was his judgment. And here's the thing, he didn't even last through the night. God was so offended at his pride and at his arrogance and his lack of humility to submit to him that he didn't even last through the, the night. See, Daniel 4, the chapter we talked about last week, and Daniel 5, what we're talking about now, it leaves us, it actually leaves us with unanswered questions about how God deals with sin in human history. Because if you track us in Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar was given 12 months, like a year. Like, wouldn't that be nice? Like, if, like, someone's like, hey, you got a year, get your act together. Then you go over to Belshazzar, and God's like, hey, here's the, Daniel's like, here's the right on the wall. A couple hours later, he gets slain. And so you're like, what, like, how do you actually reconcile how de God deals with sin in these two different people? Like, it, like, I don't even know, like, is that fair? Is that fair of God? See, here's the thing. The passage actually gives no answer. All we're left with is Nebuchadnezzar did something with what he knew, and Belshazzar didn't. And it can be really easy to get caught up in the, like, well, is that fair and all that not? But here's the point I want you to get out of that. We need, to learn two, we need to learn from these two stories that putting off repentance until later is never a good idea. Right? Now, another thing about young adult culture, you guys may have actually thought this in your own life. I'll just get serious with God when I'm older. You know? Like, I'm going to have fun. I'm going to be a young adult. You know, I'm going to go live my college life. And I'll deal with God and kind of get right with him later. And, you know, hopefully he forgives me at that point. Here's the problem with that. There's two things that's a problem. The first thing that's a problem is that assumes that life with God is lame. <laughs> Does it not? Like, 
if God is the creator and the loving father that he is, and he designed this world to be beautiful, to say life with him sucks is a complete deception. The second problem with that is you don't know how much time you got, right? Like, I mean, hopefully all of you guys live long and prosperous lives, but the next second, your next breath isn't promised to you. And I, I want to speak to the unbeliever and the Christian right now. For the believer, I would say, like, go to God right now. <laughs> like, whatever it is in your life that you know, you know, that you know exactly what that is, like, bring it to God and, like, receive the freedom and forgiveness for that right now. Like, you don't have to wait another year. You don't have to be silent. You can go have healing and acceptance and love because Christ is that good. And for the unbeliever, I would just... I would just put before you that God really loves forgiving people, and he really loves it. Um, it's not his desire that anybody would perish, um, but if you refuse to receive the forgiveness he has to offer, he's not going to make you receive it. But I would put before you that God is a loving father who enjoys to forgive people. Is that not true? All right, let's... Um, let me read this, actually. Hebrews 3.13. <clears throat> he said, uh, the author of Hebrews says this. He goes, you must warn each other every day while it is still today or tonight so that none of you will become deceived by sin and hardened against God. Because you guys know this is true. The more you practice sinning, the more it hardens your heart. And the more your heart gets hard, the harder it is it feels like to have a tough heart. And, and the author of Hebrews is saying, like, it's still today. Like, come find forgiveness and grace today. Let me ask you, what king are you? Are you Nebuchadnezzar? Have you had to go through the, you know, the humiliating place of being like a less than human experience to come to your senses and finally repent? Or are you Belshazzar? Are you still set up against the Lord of heaven? And as we conclude, I want to take you back to the beginning of the story. And it's, uh, the beginning of the story is, um, it's a king. It's a banquet with his nobles celebrating. What Belshazzar's banquet represents is the banquet of the world with its king, Satan. Um, the scripture teaches that the, the spirit of, um, how does Ephesians 2 go? Don't remind me. Pa the spirit of the power of the air, right? This power of darkness that is, that is at work in the world. Like Belshazzar, like, his kingdom and his banquet represents the ways of the world, the joys of the world, the celebrations of the world, the vanity of the world. But I want to tell you tonight, in the gospel, there's a better banquet that you're invited to. There's a better king of the banquet. And it's the banquet of Jesus Christ. These are Jesus' very own words in Luke 14, uh, 16 through 23. I'm just going to read it. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet. That man is Jesus Christ. He's referring to himself in the third person. And, invi and invited many guests. <laughs> At that time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. Find yourself in this teaching. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me, Jesus. Another said, I have just bought, my, my, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Anybody getting any oxen anytime soon? Still another said, I just got married. There we go. That might be relevant. So I can't come. Jesus, I don't have time for you. 
The servant came back and reported this to the master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. All people Jesus loved to send home with him. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. Don't you love God's heart in that? Don't you love it? Like Jesus' desire is just like, man, I have a banquet. I'm the king of the banquet. I'm coming with a kingdom. I'm going to restore this world and all of creation. And I want everybody to be a part of it. I want everybody to be a part of it. Belshazzar's banquet, it's a fraud and it's going to end. And honestly, it ends in judgment. Jesus' banquet, it never ends. You get to be with him. And it lasts forever. You get to be with each other. Freed from your sin, free from shame, free from anxiety, all the things that bog you down, your sin. So let me end tonight by asking two questions addressing to the, the believer in the room and the unbeliever. Believer, lover of Jesus, remember that there is a way better banquet, banquet that you've been invited to. That's my challenge for you this week. I know many of you are challenged to live in, the, in Belshazzar's world and in the kingdom of God. I just want to remind you, there is a better banquet that you you have a seat at the table at. And don't forget that. And for the unbeliever, like Jesus said in this, uh, in this parable or this teaching, I would just ask you this question very personally. What's your reason for not coming to the banquet? And I don't know what that is. You may have doubts about God even existing. You may not know how to make sense of our world in light of what's happening. I don't know. You may have some personal stuff like Jesus. I've had really crappy stuff happen in my life. And I can't come to the banquet because, like, I don't know why you would let that happen. And I can't sort out all those questions with every single person here, but Jesus can. And I want you to know that he loves you and that all the excuses that you can make aren't worth actually experiencing the love of Jesus. Isn't that true? Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we, uh, we love you so much. And, God, we are thankful for your word. Um, Jesus, it's, it's just so incredible to me, even as I've studied this passage and all the messages that I've taught of how much is underneath the surface of these stories. Um, God, your word really is inspired by you, and it has power to correct, to train, to encourage, to build up faith. And Lord, um, I'm praying that tonight, Jesus, that you would be made very known and very clear to each person in the room. God, for the person who doesn't know you, I pray that they would know that they're invited tonight to your banquet, Jesus, to be with you in your presence. Uh, God, for uh, your son and daughter that you've bought uh, with your blood, Jesus, you have uh, purified a people for yourself, and you've brought them to God. And Lord, I pray that your people would know tonight that they're loved, that they're forgiven, and Lord, to, to live life full of joy, um, and completely submitted to you because that's best for us. And God, I pray that our community, 710, I pray that we would be your witnesses in our world right now that desperately needs to know the truth of your word, that there is a better king, that there really is somebody who can unite every nation, tribe, and tongue, and that we wait for him with eager expectation as he comes to restore all things. So we love you, Jesus, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen.